Jesus beckoned to the others, follow me. Are you going to start walking with me? Where are we going? asked Peter, trying to catch his breath. Are we nearly there yet? Very good. Peter was being followed closely by James and John, who were clambering their way over rocks and loose stones. Can you all climb over a rock? You can stand up to it if you want. Jesus raised his arm and pointed upwards, upwards towards the top of a high mountain. That's where we're going, he said. Peter, James and John hung their heads, all of them thinking exactly the same thing. That's a long way up. But onwards and upwards they went. It didn't matter how far it was, they were willing to follow Jesus anywhere. Over rocks, under rocks. Can you do a jump over and a duck down? Over rocks, under rocks. Through gentle streams and squelching mud. You feel that squelching mud? Up and up and up they travelled. Are we nearly there yet? They weren't. And they continued over rocks and under rocks, through gentle streams and squelching mud. They came the same question. Are we nearly there yet? They continued, are we nearly there? We're there, said Jesus, interrupting. I'm exhausted. Peter, James and John stood at the top of a very high mountain. There was no one else around. No one to be seen. They were alone. And while the disciples stood there, feeling worn out, can you do a worn out look? Very good. Yes, extremely good. They were breathless. They were confused as to the purpose of the strenuous uphill hike. Jesus' clothes at this moment began to brighten. Not the sort of brightness that you get from the sun on a bright, sunny day. Jesus' clothes became dazzling, blinding white, shining from the top of the mountain. What's happening? The disciples asked one another. And then two people appeared next to Jesus. It was Moses and Elijah, speaking with Jesus, whose clothes remained dazzling white. What does one do in this situation? What would you think was going on? Peter's instant reaction was to say this. Lord, it's good that we're here. Shall I build three shelters? One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You can imagine him kind of making tents for them quickly. Peter didn't know what else to say. There just weren't any words to match what was happening at the top of the mountain. Not to mention that Peter and James and John were frozen with fear at this strange occurrence. As if they weren't scared enough. A cloud then covered the disciples. And a voice came from within the cloud. This is my son, 
whom I love, listen to him. Still frozen with fear, the disciples were now curled up on the floor with their eyes closed and their faces to the ground with their hands over their heads. Jesus approached the three of them and touched them on their heads and opened their eyes and they looked up. Don't be afraid, Jesus said calmly. As Peter, James and John looked around, they could see no one else. Moses and Elijah were no longer there and the cloud that covered them had disappeared. There was only Jesus left. Jesus, Peter, James and John made their way back down the mountainside. Over rocks, under rocks, through gentle streams and squelching mud. Down and down and down the mountain. Are we nearly there yet? Oh. On the way down, Jesus told the three of them to keep what they had seen a secret. They weren't to tell anyone until after he had died and risen again. And so Peter, James and John kept everything they'd seen to themselves until the time that Jesus had said. Amen. That's uh, quite a lot of fun in the first few minutes. Uh, that, that bed there is quite tempting, but... Uh... Just in the middle of my stint of uh, Hazemere, the, the youth camps, which forms part of my role. And as you can imagine, sleep is a little bit hard to come by when you've got 50 or 60 teenagers uh, week by week. Um, we're going to use some, uh, some art this morning. I'm not a great artist myself. My stick drawings wouldn't uh, razzle-dazzle you. But um, this image here hopefully will. If anyone needs uh, a large print copy of this, uh, I have got one or two spares. And you can also uh, take one away afterwards if you would like to. And we'll actually be looking at this image in, uh, in two parts. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear that word, um, transfiguration. Are there any um, Harry Potter buffs amongst us? Yes, there's at least a whole two. <laughs> I imagine that some of those who've gone out to the children's groups for the uh, summer Sunday activities are also Harry Potter's, Potter buffs. Um, so if I mentioned transfiguration to you, would you know what that would be? Turning something from one thing into another. So in fact, it's one of the, uh, the main sort of classes at um, Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And uh, when Hermione Granger turns up at the school... She says this, she says, I do hope they start right away. There's so much to learn. I'm particularly interested in transfiguration, you know, turning something into something else. Of course, it's supposed to be very different. And there's a classroom scene in one of the films where um, the an animals are turned into water goblets, and that's part of the lesson that the students um, have to take part in. And Harry's friend, Ron Weasley, has a few problems as he um, says the magic words and tries to transform a rat into a water goblet and ends up with a water goblet with a very bushy tail. <laughs> Stuart
Students get taught how to transfigure one thing into something else. And there's even an equation to explain how it all happens. Well, the transfiguration, I'm sorry, Dan, but the transfiguration we're focusing on this morning is rather more breathtaking and ultimately rather more significant. It can't be explained through equations or magic, but it draws us in and points us to the glory and majesty of God. As Jesus' closest friends, three of the disciples, get a glimpse of Jesus not just bathed in light, but shining with the glory of God. We've heard the scene described in words through that interactive reading, but now we're going to consider it in its visual form. And so we've got this uh, powerful image painted round about 1520 by Raphael. An incredible painting which captures something of the nature of the events of transfiguration. And also another biblical scene which we'll explore as well. So the top half of the picture, in fact we can uh, see this in two parts, so let's go on just to make it a bit clearer. There's the top half of the image. And that's the image of the Transfiguration. It's described in uh, three of the Gospels. And then the uh, second image, we'll just go on to that one and we'll move back, is actually from Matthew's Gospel. So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, you've got the description of the Transfiguration. And then immediately after that, you've got the story of the disciples trying to um, drive out a demon from uh, a little boy. And uh, they come back to Jesus and say, we couldn't do it, you know. And so you've got those two very contrasting images, the one of glory and the one of chaos and failure. Let's just go back to the transfiguration, shall we? The the, uh, middle slide. Great. You've got an image of Jesus there in the middle at the top. I'm not sure about his uh, sort of levitation skills. But it's, it's of its type, it's of its day, isn't it? But the image of Jesus, it's got a, a face which certainly in artistic terms is deemed to be perfect, a symbolism of Jesus as the perfect man. And then you've got Moses carrying the book of the law. You've got Elijah, the prophet. And their significance is, uh, is really important because back earlier in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Jesus speaks of himself as the one who would fulfill all the law and the prophets. And so Moses is there symbolising the law and Elijah the prophets. And then you've got Peter, James and John beneath, part dozing, part awestruck at what they're caught up in, what they're experiencing. But who are these strange characters over here on the left? They don't seem to appear in the biblical account. Well, actually, they are two saints, Justice and Pastor. In fact, their feast day is celebrated today in parts of the church. And the cathedral in Narbonne is dedicated to them. That's significant because it was the Archbishop of Narbonne who commissioned this particular painting. Let's just go on to the the second image for a moment again. One of the things that's striking about both of these pictures, or both parts of this picture, is the way in which the artist uses light, really clever lighting effects. And in this half you see 
the brightness of the faces of the, the father, of the boy himself, of the woman kneeling next to him. Brightness expressing faith. Whereas the faces of the disciples on the left-hand side, you see you've got uh, the other nine disciples. Three, of course, are involved with the transfiguration scene there. And they're portrayed more in darkness. The idea of them having little faith, of having doubts, of not being so sure of themselves. And then in the lower left-hand corner, you've got uh, Matthew in blue with this goldy-coloured cloak. Matthew, the Gospel writer, holding the book, symbolising his Gospel, strongly lit to signify the revelation of God to humanity. And if you look really closely, you'll see that the book itself rests on a block of wood, a reference to the crucifixion, the cross of wood. Now, I don't have uh, the mind of Raphael, nor the artistic talent, but what I find striking is that in the, in the top image, the transfiguration scene itself, we're taken to a higher plane. We get a real glimpse of God's glory. It's a scene of majesty. It's a scene of wonder. It's something that is very much out of the ordinary. And yet the lower scene, it speaks of struggle, of trial, of everyday battles and failure. It's a scene of chaos. I wonder where we would like to reside. Which of those two scenes? In transfiguration glory or in the chaotic everyday? Sometimes in our earthly lives we get that glimpse of God's glory. Maybe we have a powerful sense of God's presence with us as the Holy Spirit is at work. We're aware of God at work in a supernatural way. Maybe we're caught up in worship and long to stay in that place of worship and adoration. Maybe we're inspired by a a conference. We go to Spring Harvest or New Wine or something like that and we get inspiring teaching and... uh, We respond to a particular message and we're just so aware of God at work within us. Maybe we're caught up in the the beauty of God's creation. A mountain sea. Rivers flowing. We'd love to stay in that place forever. I've been at Hazemir, as I say, earlier on this week and uh, in my particular small group, we had a lad who um, has come for the last couple of years and he was sharing very honestly in one of our group times that for three weeks of the year, he feels really close to God. He gets a glimpse of God's glory. He, he comes to Hazelmere, the youth camp. From there he goes on a family holiday to the spring harvest uh, uh, place in France, Le Paz And during that time he feels really close to God. But then he comes away from there and all that seems to disappear. He moves from that that glory, that transfiguration place, back into the chaos, and struggles to see God in that, and hasn't yet found ways of equipping himself to stay in a better place, a stronger place, and look to God in the struggle. Sometimes we wish we could stay in the same place forever, 
with God. I wonder if Simon Peter, in suggesting that he built three shelters for Jesus, for Moses and Elijah, was just trying to make the moment last that little bit longer. But the fact is, isn't it, that in in our lives on this earth, that we can't stay on that mountaintop forever. We have to come back down to earth, where things don't always go to plan. Where life can be chaotic. And yet, we're still called to trust in God's word. To seek to live for Christ. To see him even in the chaos. The pain and anguish in the faces of some of the characters in the lower half of the painting is only temporary. With the promises of God secure. The sort of champagne moments, to use a test match special cricket, there had to be an analogy in there somewhere, are a privilege to be cherished. I'm sure Peter, James and John cherished this experience for the rest of their lives. It would have served to inspire and motivate and resource them for everyday living. They were woken up to the splendour and glory of God in a new way. They were very privileged, of course, to have many of those moments. And that's what champagne moments do for us. Build us up, resource us, inspire us, motivate us. They provide us with a glimpse of God's glory. And that glimpse is a foretaste of God's eternal glory available to all of us who follow him. One day we will all be transfigured, not on a mountain here on earth, but in the glory of heaven with Moses and Elijah for neighbours. Peter, James and John regaling us with stories and the saints of the ages for company. So when we do get those glimpses of God's glory on earth, let's treasure them. Let's hold on to them. And they will be part of the equipping others to cope with the more challenging times. When things don't quite go to plan. When chaos seems to dominate our lives. And in that, we hold fast to God's promises. We hold fast the promise of eternity in heaven. I don't know what sort of situation some of you are facing at the moment. Maybe there are scenes of chaos. Maybe there are scenes of pain. There are scenes of despair. Maybe you are in a place where actually you're in a season where it's very easy to glimpse God's glory, to see God at work in your life. But wherever you are, Hold on to those eternal promises, the eternal hope, the eternal glory that awaits us all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning of uh, your eternal glory. Thank you that on days like this, when we mark the Feast of the Transfiguration, We just get a glimpse of something other, something on a higher plane. Thank you for those times when 
we're just caught up in the majesty and splendour of God. When we really sense your presence and see you powerfully at work, thank you for those times which sustain us and resource us and inspire us. But thank you, Lord, that you're just as much with us in the chaos. Help us to recognise that, Lord God. And when things are tough and it's tempting to turn away, may we hold on to your promises. Your promises of a hope and a future. Your promises of eternal glory. Strengthen us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.